it's always a dangerous and tricky thing to complain about the Bible. In fact, uh, when I'm tempted to do so, I have to stop and remember that, of course, God knows what he's doing. God is far, far more wise than I could ever be, and there's no sense whatsoever in which I could ever correct God. So instead, maybe what I should do is confess, not that God should have done it differently, but that I'm insufficiently trained to understand why he didn't do it differently. The it of which I speak is uh, with direct reference to Genesis chapter 7. We have been working our way carefully, chapter by chapter, through the book of Genesis. And in Genesis 7, it's just one chapter. In Genesis, Genesis 7, here's what happens. God puts Noah and his family in this giant ark. And they come in two by two, or in the case of clean animals, seven of them are brought onto the ark. And it begins to rain, and the great fountains of the deep pour forth. And everyone that's not on the ark dies. And the entire globe is covered with water. You know, this is not, as we'll see next chapter, this is not something that happens every day. This is not something that happens every day times 10. That is, my. it's not like something similar happens and this is just a, a turning up the volume of the event uh, to 11. What in, I mean, if it were me and praise God, it's not me. If it were me, I would be telling this story. It would be as thick as the Bible itself. I can't imagine anything more dramatic with the, in all the Old Testament, with the possible exception of the creation itself. This is an event of mammoth proportions. And it gets one chapter in the Bible. We're not told anything about what Noah thought or Noah's wife or the kids. We're not told anything about uh, the neighbors. We don't know, as I've mentioned before, whether or not, for sure, we don't know whether or not rain existed or as the water began to fall from the sky. What in the world were the neighbors thinking? We don't know much about the neighbors' mockery of Noah as he built the ark. We're not told. Wouldn't you want to hear the the creaking of these timbers? As the water begins to lift this incredible, huge boat up off the ground. I just can't believe there's not more. But there's not more. There is instead something profoundly intimate and profoundly local in this story of a global flood. 
You know, friends, that this is one of those things, probably simply second to the the six-day creation, one of those things where uh, the secular world looks at our story and just absolutely hoots and haws and scoffs at us because of this notion of a global flood. You can get scientists to give you, well, this is how much water would have to come in order to cover the tops of the highest mountains in the world. Uh, of course, we don't know that that's the situation when the flood came, that Mount Everest was even a mount. It might have been a molehill back then. Who knows? We don't know much about where all the water came from. Uh, I'm not troubled by that. I, I, it sounds to me in reading the text like uh, a great deal of it came from underground uh, and you know spewed out and covered the, the world. Uh, some did, in fact, come from the sky. My point is the flood is global, but the story, the focus, the, the scope of what we're told is local. God didn't come and shout out to the whole world, hey, any of you who believe in me, any of you who know uh, that you're sinners, uh, who know that you're under my judgment unless you repent, any of you who've repented, uh, get ready because a flood's coming. Oh, God spoke to Noah. And Noah built this ark and when it came close to the time that the rains were going to come, Noah and his family and the animals got on the ark. Now, again, I don't know uh, what else was going on around the globe. In fact, I don't even know uh, if there was an around the globe back then. It's certainly uh, possible, and I, I, I'm always intrigued, like most people are, by the the interesting shapes of the continents and how they look very much like they could sort of uh, meet together like the pieces of a puzzle. And so there is a theory that says all of the land mass uh, prior to the global flood was uh, connected and together. I don't know if that's true or not. Uh, I don't know if there were people on the opposite side of the globe from where Noah was. I, I just don't know. I do know this, that every last one of them died. And because every last one of them was under God's judgment for sin, just as we are in ourselves. I know, friends, that, that uh, God the Holy Spirit and Moses uh, go to pains to uh, describe and affirm the character uh, of Noah. And I know that he was a godly man. Uh, but you do need to understand he was not a sinless man. Uh, yes, it describes him as righteous. I would suggest that that is a righteousness imputed to him uh, because of the future work of Christ, that that he may have been better than many, but he certainly wasn't perfect. He didn't measure up to God's absolute standard. You can see that soon enough after uh, he makes his wine and drinks too much of it. 
So I don't want you to think of Noah as uh, sinless like Jesus. He's not. Everyone that was on the boat was just as due death as all those who died outside the boat. So why were they in the boat? How did they get there? And the answer to that story or the answer to that question, rather, is that they're there because of the grace of God. You know, when I was in high school, I attended a, a essentially secular school. Uh, my uh, English teacher was a, a PhD from NYU uh, who was not uh, a, a believer in any religion. He was a, a kind man, and I enjoyed uh, his class. Um, but my sophomore year, uh, we studied American literature, and like a lot of people studying American literature, we read, the students in the class, we all read uh, Jonathan Edwards' uh, famous sermon, Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God. And I suspect that my teacher had never in the history of his teaching uh, had a student in his classroom uh, who took the perspective that I took. We're talking about this sermon. And you, you may know it, uh, you may have read it, but a very quick summary is that it, Edwards gives this profoundly uh, terrifying description uh, of mankind, of each one of us as a uh, loathsome spider uh, that is hanging by a gossamer thread uh, over a raging, burning cauldron, that God is holding that uh that spider thread over and that at any second we could fall into that uh, fire just as we are due. And when it's read, typically in literature classes, uh, we're all supposed to have the same response. We're all supposed to be appalled and aghast and, and, and learn something about the, the sick psyches uh, of the Puritans. Well, uh, I had opportunity to speak in the class and was asked, you know, basically, what did, what did I think? And I said, oh, I, I think this sermon is a powerful message on the grace of God. What? I mean, you know, people's heads explode. How can you see this as a sermon on the grace of God? I said, how could you not? The whole point is that we're supposed to be in that cauldron. That's what's owed to us. Whether we're about to fall in or whether we'll never fall in is beside the point. The point is we're not in there now because of God's grace toward all of us. Well, the same principle applies here to the flood. The shocking thing is not, why in the world would God kill all these people and only rescue Noah and his family? The real question is, why in the world would God rescue Noah and his family? And the answer, of course, is that because of Jesus, because of God's grace, 
One of the things I love that's so easy to miss, and, and I guess this applies the same principle that I made earlier in Genesis 1 and 2, that while I believe Genesis 1 and 2 does teach six-day creation, uh, I don't think that's the principal purpose uh, that God had it written down and had it written down the way it's written down. In the same way, uh, I believe that, that Genesis uh, teaches a global flood, that a global flood actually happened. And I'm grateful for all those who were able to to study and to consider how the flood has uh, shaped the world and how the evidence uh, in the uh, strata, et cetera, uh, it provides evidence for this global flood. That's all great. But God gave us this message, not so we could know how to answer unbelieving scientists, but so that we could deal with our own weaknesses and our own failures and our own sins. And that's why we tend to miss one of the most beautiful things in the whole story, where we're told that Adam and Eve, see Adam and Eve, they were long dead, <laughs> that Noah and his wife, their three sons and their wives, when they went into the ark, were told that God closed the door. God closed the door. He is the one that put them in there. He is the one that protected them in there. He is the one who secured them. You can see in the ark a kind of a picture or a type of the church. This is where the safety is. This is where you're called out from, which you may know is the language in the New Testament of the nature of the church. We are the ecclesia, the called out ones. And so Noah and his family are called out of death and destruction and into life, and God secures them there. But wait, there's more. Oh, I better not go there yet. We'll wait till we get to chapter 8. That's probably wiser. Now, here again is where I, I want to go into this story. I want to peek into this life. What was it like as this storm raged after the voices? I almost think, you know, we have this image of uh, the horror of Adam and Eve I keep saying Adam and Eve. We have the horror of Noah and his wife uh, and, the, and the sons and their wives hearing the screams of those dying outside. And that is indeed terrible and horrible. But, you know, I can't imagine that it was any worse or that it actually got worse when the screams stopped. And it was just them in that ark I can hear again the beams creaking as the ark moves in the water, as they have experienced in a profound way the just wrath of God poured out on the planet. It makes you wonder how any of them could ever forget or diminish their understanding of the grace of God. You, it makes you wonder how they didn't have PTSD every time it rained for the rest of their lives. 
it makes you wonder how they could have lost sight of God's grace until we realize that that's just what we do. That it's not just that we have been rescued from a flood which takes our earthly lives. We've been rescued from a lake of fire that is an eternal death. We are by nature the enemies of God and what is owed to us, what is due to us is that eternal punishment. I do think it's a good thing to enter into, to, to try to step into this story as viscerally, as uh, emotionally as we can muster. To remember, of course, that this is not some cartoon. This is not some uh, stuffed animals in a toy boat. This is real. It happened in space and time. It happened to our parents. Enter into it. And then, when you are stirred, when you are moved, when you are rejoicing over God's grace and delivering them, remember how much more has he rescued us. Remember his grace for us. I don't know what was going through the eight people's hearts and minds. I don't know if they were bitter toward God. I don't know if they were frightened. I don't know if they were prideful. Maybe all of the above. I don't know. But this I do know. The grace that they received, because it is grace, is not what they were due. It's not deserved. And the same is true of us. Now, next time, we will look at chapter 8. We're going to learn more about uh, the latter days of this time. Let's learn, for instance, and not forget that while it rained for 40 days and 40 nights, the journey was not just 40 days and 40 nights. It was much longer as they waited for the rain to subside. Don't lose sight of the fact that this is history, that this actually happened, that Noah was a man just like me, that Noah's wife was a woman just like any of you that are ladies out there. He rescued them, and he rescues us, not through a wooden ark, but through the suffering death of Jesus, our Savior.